Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. So it's been a bad few weeks for Timeless fans since my last podcast. First we got the announcement that NBC had decided not to pick up Timeless for season 3. Then Sean Ryan announced that no other network would pick up the show either. It seems unbelievable and heartbreaking that the show hasn't been recognised, by NBC in particular. But the moment they put it back into a 10pm time slot for season 2, I think the writing was on the wall that they just didn't get the show at all. When I first started this podcast, my hope was that I could do my small part to say that Timeless is an amazing show, that it stands head and shoulders above most other television dramas, that each script was really polished and that the themes it explores are really important. People will say that Timeless hasn't succeeded as a show, but they will be wrong. I think it has succeeded on every level, and if it doesn't continue, that doesn't change the fact that it was completely successful in what it set out to do. The online campaign to renew Timeless is huge. The networks must know that there is a huge dedicated fan base for this show. And it is still possible for the show to get picked up and renewed at some point. I think Sean Ryan had to make the announcement he did at the time he did, because all of the cast and crew's contracts were up. And you can't hold on to people at that point, you have to let them go. The problem with NBC now, and the other major broadcast networks, is that they are tied into a business model that is failing. People are not going to tune in to watch programmes live every week at a time that suits NBC and suits their advertisers. With the rise of streaming, people are going to watch at a time that suits them. And NBC's advertising revenue will just fall and fall and fall if they don't build and support the fan base for their shows. There is still talk of NBC financing a two-hour wrap-up movie. The question for me is whether that would provide a better ending than the one we got. I thought the final episode of season two was incredible. I think it was just about as awesome an ending as you could possibly have. But at the same time, anything new would be lovely to see. I completely trust the people who write Timeless and the whole production team to come up with something worthwhile if they're given the chance. And I know a lot of the fans would appreciate the chance to see an ending that was less of a cliffhanger and a more satisfying ending in the sense of seeing on screen how things play out. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I will talk more about episode 10 in due course. But for now I'm here to talk about season 2 episode 6 It is tempting to approach these podcasts about the last episodes of season two in a very sad and disappointed kind of way in view of what's happened. But I think that is not the right way to talk about some of the best hours of television drama that you will ever see. So I'm going to do my best to celebrate everything that is good about Timeless as I talk about the rest of season two. Okay, here we go then. This time I'm talking about season two, episode six. The King of the Delta Blues. The episode starts in San Antonio, Texas, November 23rd, 1936. Music producer Don Law is talking to his assistant, Betty. Betty says, they say he made a deal with the devil. Don says that's all just superstition. During this, Robert Johnson enters the hotel room and says, I wouldn't bet money on it. 
He says five years previously he couldn't play a lick. Now he's the best around. How else can they explain that? But it's not clear whether he himself really believes that he made a deal with the devil or he's just flirting with Betty. Don sends her out of the room. She's disappointed. She wanted to hear Johnson play. Don promises she can listen to the recording later. Johnson says he's going to make them both famous and he starts to sing and play while Don Law records it. We cut to the bunker. Rufus wakes up on a couch, clearly tired and not had much sleep. He gets up and heads to the showers, where he meets Wyatt coming out. Rufus complains to him about the couch. We learn that he's given up his usual bed so that Wyatt and Jessica can have the room. Rufus says Wyatt and Jessica might want to keep the noise down. Rufus says the bunker is still a work environment, which makes Wyatt laugh, and then they're both laughing. And at that moment, Lucy arrives. She says that Rufus can be with Gia in their room, and she'll go on the couch, which means she heard the exchange between Wyatt and Rufus. There's been some criticism of Wyatt's behaviour here, and Rufus's. He is being rather juvenile, and inconsiderate to Lucy. But I think, first of all, there is no reason for Wyatt to be a perfect person. People do behave stupidly sometimes. But he's not that out of order here. It is an awkward situation for all of them. But he and Jessica have nowhere else to go. And as for the laughter, well, Rufus can make anyone laugh, so I don't think Wyatt can be blamed for that. We cut to Gia. She sits up in bed and has another vision. Premonition. We don't see what she sees, but we hear the sound of gunshots, which is never good. She wanders out of the room and finds Rufus working on the lifeboat. He asks if she's okay. She says she didn't sleep well. He says if it was because of her visions, he'd rather not know. She denies it, and Rufus is too preoccupied to realise that she's lying. She asks if he's had any luck getting a fourth seat into the lifeboat which was mentioned in the previous episode, although you could easily have missed it. He says the maths checks out. He runs a test, and then they're celebrating success. The lifeboat has been upgraded to take four people. This is a game-changer for Timeless, the show. It changes the shape of the show if you have four people on each trip back in time. For a start, it means the available screen time has to be split four ways rather than three. Which is great in a lot of ways, because all the supporting cast are so good. But it means the days of it being just Wyatt, Lucy and Rufus in the ship are gone now. And that makes me feel a little bit sad. But Timeless isn't a show where everything stays exactly the same from one episode to the next. Things change. Next, Connor Mason joins them, a very drunk Connor Mason. He treats them to a few lines from Macbeth. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. In other words, life can be a bit of a disappointment sometimes. And Mason informs them that today is the day he loses control of Mason Industries. He is officially nobody. I think Mason's fall was inevitable, really, having turned to Rittenhouse for funding. Rittenhouse wanted a time machine and they went after Mason to get one. So, like the others, Mason has had everything taken from him. 
Agent Christopher arrives. She tells Wyatt that she needs to speak with him. But then they get the alarm telling them that the mothership has jumped. So they'll need to deal with that first. Lucy can't think of anything important in San Antonio on that date. Nor can Flynn. But then Connor shouts out that it's got to be the Gunter Hotel. It's obvious. But when he tells them it has to be there because Robert Johnson is recording an album that will change the world, they're sceptical. But he and Lucy make an argument for why this could be Rittenhouse's target. Connor says without Johnson there will be no modern blues, no Elvis, Beatles, Stones or Led Zeppelin. Lucy says it wouldn't just be rock and roll, it would be the cultural revolution of the 60s, the civil rights movement, the fall of Nixon, the end of the Vietnam War. So Agent Christopher is convinced and now they have a fourth seat in the lifeboat. That seat can be taken by Connor Mason himself. Except they discover that Connor Mason has never travelled in time. Not a single test flight. They all seem very surprised by this. I can't say I am. When does the CEO of the company ever fly the plane? But Christopher tells him he's going. She also says Flynn is going on the mission. Wyatt is staying back with her. Everyone is against that idea to begin with, but Christopher isn't taking any argument. She gives Flynn a gun, at last, which is something he's been waiting for. Wyatt tells Flynn to keep them safe, and he has to watch the lifeboat leave on the mission without him. Wyatt wants to know why he's not on the mission. Christopher says, how do you like to take out Rittenhouse for good? She explains to Wyatt that when Carol Preston had her abducted, in the previous episode. The tracker in her neck gave them the location where Denise was being held. She wants Wyatt to raid that facility. He'll have a helmet cam so that she and Gia can monitor what's happening. Denise says Wyatt's going in solo. Gia is surprised. She says, you're not sending in the cavalry, presumably mispronouncing cavalry. What's really funny here is that Without missing a beat, Denise says she doesn't trust the Calvary. I'd love to know if this was scripted or an accident or a bit of mischief by Claudia and Sakina. Matt Lanter stays completely deadpan through it, so I'm inclined to think he knew it was coming. Denise tells Wyatt this is an intelligence gathering mission, not an assault. Get in, get what's there, get out. So Wyatt goes off to prepare leaving Gia and Denise alone. Gia asks Denise, is it okay to keep secrets from someone you love? Denise says, what kind of secrets? What are you talking about? Gia gets cold feet about discussing whatever's on her mind. She says it's just relationship issues between her and Rufus, but we can tell it's something that's really troubling her. Something to do with the vision and the gunshots, we can suppose. But that will have to wait till later. For now, she has to prepare the link for Wyatt's mission. We cut to the lifeboat which has landed in 1936. We didn't get an interior shot of the four people sitting inside, which is a shame. They've all disembarked. Connor monologues poetically about the experience of being in the past. How like the present it seems. Space-time compression and quantum gravitational bursts making the hairs on the back of his hand stand up. And then he throws up, which Flynn was expecting. 
They've arrived just an hour and 17 minutes before Robert Johnson is supposed to record his album. Connor says, how do we begin? And Rufus and Lucy say together, get some clothes, steal a car. The credits are on screen at this point. This episode is written by Anselm Richardson. He previously wrote episode 9 of Timeless Season 1. That was Last Ride of Bonnie and Clyde. And he co-wrote episode 15, Public Enemy Number 1. And he has a story editor credit throughout season 2. And the episode is directed by Greg Beeman. He previously directed episodes 6 and 13 of Timeless Season 1. And episodes 1, 6 and 10 of season 2. That's The Watergate Tape, Karma Chameleon, The War to Endor Wars, The King of the Delta Blues and Chinatown. So obviously that is a formidable set of episodes and he has made a massive contribution to the series. In the Gunter Hotel, Robert Johnson is playing, Don Law is recording. Then the door to the hotel room bursts open and a man comes in and points a gun at Johnson. But before he can fire, he's shot dead by Garcia Flynn. Unfortunately, he crashes through Law's recording equipment as he falls down. Lucy follows Flynn in. She introduces herself as Taylor Swift and Flynn as Agent Timberlake. They are with the new FBI. Rufus and Connor follow them. Don Law is rather taken aback by this very diverse and inclusive group of FBI agents in 1936. Mason introduces himself as Lando Calrissian with British Intelligence, Kenya's station. His Majesty sends his regards. He says they will remove the deceased and Law and Johnson can continue with whatever they were doing. But they're too thrown by what's just happened and they're not buying the idea that this gunman was a bootlegger who just wandered into the wrong room. Connor says they have to record this record, it's important. Law wants to know why this would be important to British intelligence. Then they claim they're fans, big fans, huge big fans, incredible fans. But if Law is at all persuaded by that, he says it's too late, because while everyone was convincing Law, Robert Johnson has slipped out of the room. They decide to split up. Rufus and Connor go after Johnson, while Lucy and Flynn stay with Law. This is a familiar storytelling technique for Timeless. Split the team up so we can alternate between the two story threads and keep the plot moving along. A little later, Lucy is still trying to persuade Don Law to continue with the recording. Flynn is busy disposing of the body at this point. Lucy tells him that Johnson is a special talent and that Laura is not misguided in pursuing a career as a music producer, in preference to the bookkeeper job that his father expected for him. Lucy succeeds in persuading Don Law to try again with Johnson. You see a sort of secret smile on Lucy's face. She's pleased with herself for getting Law back on track. A lot of his equipment is broken, but he thinks he can piece it all back together again if Rufus and Connor can find Johnson. And find him they do. They find him walking at the side of the road. He says he's going to see his sister. They try to persuade him to go back with them, but he refuses. He insists he's cursed. He made a deal with the devil, and what happened with the recording was the devil laughing at him. Eventually Connor gives up on trying to persuade Johnson to go back, and instead offers to drive him to his sister's. 
He's thinking they can get Flynn and Lucy to bring Don Law to them instead. We cut back to the Rittenhouse facility with an armed Wyatt entering the building. Denise confirms this is definitely where she was held. Suddenly Wyatt is attacked by another man. They fight. The man has a handgun and almost manages to shoot Wyatt with it. But then it's the other man who is shot and killed. The facility seems to be empty, but the dead man has a key fob in his possession, which has a serial number. Gia tries to trace that serial number and discovers the fob gives access to a priority client. She says she'll need a couple of hours to get past a firewall to find out more. They're hoping this might give them the address of Rittenhouse's main base of operations. Back with Rufus, he uses a public telephone box to call the Gunter Hotel to speak to Lucy. There are signs saying, Whites only, and Johnson tells Connor that the call better be made quick or they won't be able to get out of there fast enough. Connor asks Johnson if he will get to hear Johnson play at his sister's juke joint, but Johnson says he won't be there long enough. He's going there to say goodbye. Connor says Don Law believes in him, and Connor does too. He says he's heard the story, how Johnson couldn't play. Then he went down to the crossroads at midnight. The devil tuned his guitar in exchange for his soul. And after that, other blues men couldn't match him. Johnson says he is cursed as a result. The devil tricked him, widowed twice. He says, death and heartbreak follow me everywhere I turn. If you ever struck a deal with the devil, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Connor says he made his own deal with the devil and it cost him everything he had, meaning Rittenhouse and the loss of his company. And I think in a nutshell, this is what the episode is about. How do you recover from a terrible, bad decision? How can you find redemption for that? Rufus comes back to them and tells them he left a message for Lucy. They'll have to hope she gets it and they resume their journey. We cut back to Lucy and Flynn. She asks him what he did with the body. He says, do you really want to know? She's doing something with the recording equipment, flicking switches, listening to headphones. Goodness knows what she's doing. Maybe she is reminiscing about Amy's podcast. Anyway, Flynn says he thinks it's time they levelled with each other. He says he's way more fun on these missions than Wyatt. Lucy says he's delusional. Flynn says it must be awkward between the two of them, Wyatt and Rufus giggling like schoolboys, Wyatt and Jessica's late-night activities. Lucy denies it's awkward. He says, so that's not why you keep a bottle of vodka under your bed. She asks if he's been spying on her. He says no, but he remembers reading about it in her journal. He says when she gave it to him, at first he saw it just as a tool to take down Rittenhouse. But the more he read it, the more he felt like he knew her and understood her. She asks, what do you want from me? She's angry. She says, you don't know me. He says, I guess we're having our own awkward moment now. They're interrupted by a hotel bellboy who gives them the message from Rufus. Johnson, Connor and Rufus arrive at Johnson's sister's juke joint. 
Johnson says this is the one place he doesn't have to worry about the devil playing tricks on him. Connor Mason looks like he's in heaven as he goes into the place. It's a complete contrast to his drunken bitterness earlier. Robert doesn't immediately find his sister, but he stops at a table where Mason recognises Muddy Waters, Eddie Sunhouse Jr. and Bessie Smith. For a moment it looks like Bessie Smith is taking offence at Mason for some reason, but actually she just loves his British accent. Before you know it, Mason is buying drinks for everyone. He must have brought some money with him. Don Law is coming back up the stairs at the Gunter Hotel, bringing replacement recording equipment. Lucy and Flynn are at the top of the staircase. She calls down to him. They need to go to Johnson's sister's place instead and record him there. At the bottom of the stairs, Law's assistant Betty appears and she fires a gun up the stairs. A modern gun. Flynn pulls Lucy away just in time, but unfortunately Don Law is shot and killed and Betty makes her escape. Lucy and Flynn realise that Betty is another Rittenhouse agent and she now knows exactly where to find Johnson. It's noticeable that in a combat situation like this, Flynn takes the lead and he's very careful to move Lucy to safety. I think he would do that for any civilian, but you could argue that he was being especially protective of Lucy here. Next we see Flynn and Lucy in a car, and we get one of the best scenes we've had between these two. It's night, they're trying to get to Johnson, but they know Betty is ahead of them, and she knows the roads better than they do. Flynn is driving, there's a radio on, and Flynn starts humming along to the tune, apparently without being especially conscious that he's doing it. Incidentally, it is plausible, um, historically, that a car would have a radio in 1936. And the song is Bing Crosby's I Wished on the Moon, released in 1935, a year earlier. Anyway, Flynn says that his wife used to sing this song. Following up on the earlier conversation, he admits that he doesn't know Lucy, but he says he would like to get to know her. But he would understand if she didn't want that. Lucy says her mother used to sing this song too. There's a very slight smile on Flynn's face as she says this. He says Lorena, his wife, would lie on the couch humming it. It actually used to bother him, but he reflects on the things he misses about her, including the smell of her hair. Lucy says her sister Amy had a strawberry-scented shampoo at one time. As a child, when she was scared, she would sneak into Lucy's bed, and the smell of her hair would make Lucy dream of milkshakes. Mention of Amy leads Flynn to say that he never intended for Amy to be erased from history. He never wanted to hurt Lucy. There is some debate uh, in the fandom about whether this amounts to an apology by Flynn here. I think he is expressing regret. The question is whether you can completely believe him. She says they will never get back the people they love, will they? He says only if they give up hope. He knows somehow, some way, they will save the people they love. Lucy gives him a long look and says, You knew from my journal that my mother sang that song, didn't you? He barely nods his head, admitting it. He says she should know that Lucy in that journal, she's very, very impressive. She seems amused, 
but you're left wondering whether any of what Flynn has said is true, or if it was all an attempt to manipulate her, to build a greater rapport between them. It's beautifully written and played, this scene, and at the end of it you have no way of knowing if Flynn has either been very open and honest with her, or the complete opposite. Probably the kindest uh, interpretation of the scene in terms of Flynn's behaviour is that, yes, from the journal, he knew already that both his wife and Lucy's mother liked this particular song. And hearing it on the radio, it prompts him to discuss it with her. At the other extreme, he's made up that his wife likes the song and was just inventing any personal connection to it in order to make Lucy like him more. Mason is happily just soaking up the atmosphere in the juke joint, but Rufus is getting worried that Johnson's sister still hasn't arrived and Lucy and Flynn might not have got his message. Mason tells Rufus when they get back to the present he's leaving. He says he hasn't contributed a great deal to the missions anyway. Rufus is getting increasingly frustrated with him. He says they don't have time for Mason's midlife crisis and they should be working on getting Johnson to change his mind and get the recordings done. It's interesting that Rufus is very focused on achieving the mission in a way that Mason just isn't. It's very revealing, I think, about how Rufus's experiences through all the missions he's been on has changed him from the very unconfident, slightly bumbling person he was in the beginning. They're interrupted by the arrival of Johnson's sister Carrie. Johnson says he has something he needs to tell her. But we cut away from that to Wyatt, who informs Agent Christopher over the comms link that he's at the new location, and it looks like it is the Rittenhouse headquarters. He's still combat ready. Gia argues with Christopher about whether Wyatt should be going in alone, but Denise says she can't risk bringing anyone else in. A Rittenhouse mole in the team would be disastrous. She tells Wyatt to go. And what we get next is something I had no expectation of seeing in this mid-season episode, with Wyatt storming into Rittenhouse HQ. This is a big event in terms of the overall story of season two. He proceeds down corridors to a stairwell. He knocks out one man he encounters, but then he's fired on by another. Wyatt fires back and hits him. He carries on and comes out into a balcony area, which looks familiar from scenes we've seen before of Carol, Emma and Nicholas. Wyatt tries to take out another man without using the gun, but then he's facing another man who is armed. Wyatt shoots him. The first man gets thrown over the balcony, but the situation is getting increasingly chaotic. The man Wyatt shot recovers enough to sound an alarm. Then we see Nicholas Keynes. He realises he's under attack and detonates an explosive near Wyatt. Wyatt's now having to defend himself as more and more Rittenhouse agents are firing on him. He moves down the stairs. He tells Agent Christopher that Rittenhouse are burning the place down to destroy the evidence. And then Wyatt comes face to face with Carol Preston. Christopher orders Wyatt to take the shot, but Carol says to him, You can't do it, can you? And he does hesitate. And then suddenly Nicholas is firing at Wyatt and he hits Wyatt. Wyatt is wearing body armour but he's knocked down by the bullet and has to take cover. Nicholas calls out to Emma to fire up the mothership. We don't see Emma but she must be piloting the ship. 
Carol and Nicholas run to the mothership to escape, and although Wyatt is firing at them, he doesn't hit them and they escape in the mothership, and Wyatt is left alone in the burning building. Back with Mason and Rufus, Johnson is saying goodbye to his sister. Rufus says they've got to do something, so he's moving towards Johnson when Betty, the Rittenhouse agent, walks in. She points a gun at Johnson, but Rufus throws himself at her to ruin her aim. Then a moment later she's shot dead. At first it appears as if she was shot by Flynn, who has just arrived with Lucy. But it's revealed that it was Connor Mason who shot her. It's become a thing in the show that, sooner or later, everyone who goes on these time missions has to kill someone. And now Mason has had to do it too. Flynn and Lucy have the recording equipment, but Johnson still hasn't agreed to anything. And Mason is distraught. Lucy tells Rufus he has to get Mason sorted out. Like Rufus, Lucy is very focused on achieving the mission. And you get the sense that she too has moved on so much from her very unconfident beginnings. When Mason hears that Don Law is dead, he says it's over. Even if he tried to record Johnson, he's not the producer that Law was, so the record won't have the same impact. Mason dismisses himself as a fanboy regarding Johnson's music and says that fanboys don't save the world. Then we get some fascinating insight into Rufus's earlier life. He says that he was a fanboy of Mason. Then in his final year at MIT, two weeks before finals, he cracked. Mason flew in for 16 hours to tell Rufus that he believed in him. Rufus looks Mason in the eyes and tells him this is him returning the favour. So Mason stands up goes to Johnson and asks him why he ever picked up a guitar in the first place. Johnson says he wanted to be the greatest bluesman in the world. Mason says then Johnson needs to show a little backbone. Johnson says he's not a coward. Mason says they're both at the same crossroads. Robert can walk away but bad luck will continue to follow him. Or each of them can stand their ground and fight. And that seems to do the trick, because the next scene is Mason recording Johnson. At one point during the recording, Mason is so excited that he yells out, Yeah! during the recording. I have to say, Kamal Nike, I hope I pronounced his name right, gives a great performance as Robert Johnson. <laughs> We cut back to Wyatt and Agent Christopher. She's giving him a hard time for not shooting Carol Preston when he had the chance. Wyatt claims his gun jammed. Agent Christopher isn't falling for that. She tells him he didn't fire because it was Lucy's mother. She says Carol Preston is the enemy. She tells him whatever's going on between him and Lucy, he needs to figure it out and deal with it. He says, yes ma'am which, of course, are words we associate with Wyatt and Lucy. But the circumstances now are very different between them. The lifeboat arrives back at the bunker, with only Gia there to meet them. Lucy comes out first, laughing at something. Gia says it seems like they enjoyed themselves. Mason says it depends if there are still hippies in the 60s, and a band called Led Zeppelin, 
She confirms that's all good with a simple duh. Mason makes a point of thanking Rufus for everything. Rufus asks whether Johnson ever told Mason what really happened at the crossroad. Mason smiles, points to the sky, but doesn't answer. Wyatt arrives back, looking exhausted. He overhears some of this. He sees Lucy and Flynn walking away together. He calls out to Lucy and asks to speak to her. Flynn walks away. Wyatt tells Lucy that Rittenhouse were hit hard and they're on the run and that Lucy's mother got away. He asks about Flynn on the mission. She says he was actually great. He really came through. Wyatt wants to know more, but Lucy says she'll talk to him tomorrow. She's sure Jessica will be worried sick. He tries to push her to talk about it now, but she says no, be with Jessica. Mason goes back to his room and takes out a Robert Johnson record. He plays it, and to his delight he hears his own voice calling out yeah during the recording, and on the record sleeve it says the recording was engineered by Lando Calrissian. Lucy is preparing to sleep on the couch, as she agreed with Rufus. She has a bottle of vodka with her, but she picks it up, goes to Flynn's room and knocks on the door. He sees her with the vodka, and she goes inside. This is a cliffhanger of sorts, as fans will wonder exactly what happens next. But we won't find out in this episode. Rufus and Gia are together in Gia's room. What was Gia and Lucy's room? It's obvious Gia has something on her mind. Rufus asks her if it's a vision. A premonition, she corrects him. She reminds him he said he didn't want to know. But he says she's built it up too much now, so she better tell him. She says she saw him near the ocean, surrounded by cowboys, she thinks, with yellow teeth and spurs on their boots. They have him surrounded, and he dies. She's trying to hold back tears as she tells him this. And that's the end of the episode. Robert Johnson is a well-known historical figure. In some ways, that's unusual that Timeless would have an episode about him because often they look at less well-known people in history. But it's an episode that Eric Kripke in particular desperately wanted to see. He's a big fan. It's a lot of fun in the scenes with Johnson, and we get a lot of good development for the main cast in the scenes for Lucy and Flynn and Lucy and Wyatt. It's especially fun to see Connor Mason go through everything he does in this episode. It's a bravura performance by Patterson Joseph and the timeless writing team choosing to put him at the centre of this episode is really wonderful. The attack on Rittenhouse is unexpected. In some ways it depowers Rittenhouse, makes them less of a threat through the rest of the season. It's not what I expected really and I'll talk more about that I think through the rest of the season 2 podcasts. Lucy's actively pushing Wyatt away now, but it's costing her. Her initial choice to say that Wyatt should be with Jessica was easy in some ways, because it was the right thing to do, arguably. But living with that choice while constantly risking your life on every mission, that's hard. 
The fact that Flynn feels like he knows Lucy, I think that is key to his relationship with her. He knows things we don't know, and whatever he knows is driving him to feel like she is important to him. I don't think it's a romantic attraction, although it could be. The relationship between Lucy and Flynn is really intriguing. There's so much there just waiting to be revealed. And with Gia and Rufus, Gia has finally spoken about what's troubling her. She's foreseen Rufus's death. And that is obviously going to drive a lot of the story from here on through to the end of the season. That's all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 7, Mrs Sherlock Holmes. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @timelessfiles. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.